Hey, food friends, and welcome to the Food Founders Podcast, your number one spot to get mentoring, guidance, and behind the scene learnings to help you understand what it really takes to launch, grow, and scale your packaged food or beverage business. On the show, you'll hear from food founders at various stages of growth, and you'll hear from me and my 14 years of packaged food and beverage experience. Each episode is packed with insights, inspiration, and learning to help you on your food business journey. I'm your host, Ainsley, and this is the Food Founders Podcast. Before we jump into today's show, I want to thank our sponsor, the Food Brands That Sell program. Food Brands That Sell is a six-week deep dive into the CPG industry and teaches you how to win within that industry by creating a brand that you, retailers, and consumers love. Here's what a recent alumni had to say about the program. I am so grateful that I chose to do Food Brands That Sell. I learned so much about myself, my journey, and my company. These six weeks changed how I'm doing my business, and I can see the difference already. I no longer feel alone. If you aren't already on the waitlist, hop on over to foodbrandsthatsellwaitlist.com or grab the link below to make sure that you are first to know when the program is accepting new students. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Food Founders Podcast. Today, I'm joined with Or Resnicki from Drip Dash, and we're going to be talking all things coffee, some revolutionary pieces to the coffee industry, and also going back in time with coffee here. So Or, welcome to the Food Founders Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Or, can you just open it up and let us all know uh, what is Drip Dash? Yeah, absolutely. So Drip Dash, uh, where the name originated from office coffee delivery in our earlier days and has gone through many pivots since, today is the premier manufacturer of Kyoto iced coffee in the U.S. So we are bridging 1600s Japanese traditional brewing with premium ingredients and modern luxury. Our whole belief is that ethnic aisles are a thing past and we're looking to celebrate fusion culture and Zoomers. So how did you land on this? Are you just like coffee lover? How did you get to this idea of bringing back this, you know, traditional way of of coffee? And if you could even explain a little bit about, you know, what that heritage looks like. Yeah, definitely. So actually, it started off originally with Dolores, who was one of the co-founders. She was working at Blue Bottle many years. And while she was working there, she noticed there is a gap for this certain style of coffee uh, called Kyoto Ice or Kyoto style coffee. Every day by 10 a.m., each one of the stores that actually makes it is running out and customers are coming in very frustrated. Uh, So we looked a little bit further into the actual product, the history and everything, trying to understand why are people gravitating so heavily towards it. A piece of it has to be the fact that it's a showcase piece of many different coffee shops. For those that may not be familiar with Kyoto Ice Coffee, it's Produced using one of those huge hourglass looking devices at coffee shops that slow drips one drop at a time for 16 hours. And it creates just a super smooth, super strong and low bitter coffee experience. So while we found this small gap in the market, the grocery, I guess, at the retail level, we said, why is it so challenging for anyone to scale it? Obviously, brewing one drop at a time has its fair share of uh, scale issues. 
And we started putting together uh, Frankenstein at first, and then we have some trade secrets and patent pending products that we built in-house to really be able to scale this brewing style because our belief is that coffee is going through this revolution similar to what happened with craft beer in the last 15, 20 years, where all of a sudden people are going to Whole Foods and they're just mesmerized by the craft beer section. Uh, they're looking at hazy IPAs, double IPAs. And in the future, we believe a fourth wave of ready to drink coffee will look like uh, people will go into the store and looking for the cold brew, the cold drip, the maybe espresso in, in a can or the Kyoto iced coffee. And that's where we come in. Okay. I have personally never tried Kyoto iced coffee. Talk, okay, it's smooth. It's got no bitterness to it. I would imagine you have a ton of people who who do love it and like absolutely love it. But then you also have this education piece as well. So talk to me about how you educate people about about what exactly this type of product is. Yeah, uh, definitely. So going back to the different brewing styles and not to get too deep in coffee technology, coffee is primarily two ingredients, coffee and water. Each brewing method has a few different variables that we control throughout the process, whether that being the pressure of the water, the temperature of the water, the time, the surface level of the coffee bean, the ground coffee bean that interacts with the water, and and that will produce together uh, different flavor outcomes. So espresso, for example, super heavily pressurized process that squeezes the coffee grounds through a fine pressure point, creating that crema on top. So that creates a super high extraction rate. Pour over, which may be you know one of those five minute rotating circles, cups of coffee. Those will create more of a full-bodied flavor where you're really able to pronounce some of the ingredients. Kyoto iced coffee, some, uh, let's call it the family of cold brew. Cold brew is generally, you take coffee grounds and you dump them inside of water, uh, let it sit between 12 to 24 hours. And that reduces the bitterness because it's it's not using any hot water. So now th- this is what we'd call an immersion process. Kyoto iced coffee is an erosion process. So it has three layers to it where we start off at the top, which is a bed of water. It goes through the middle, which is bed of coffee. Uh, and it's one drop that goes in that bed of coffee and one drop out. So it's a lo- super low agitative process. And what it creates in terms of complexity it's every part of the brewing or every hour in the brewing process, which is finally calibrated to make sure you have the perfect amount of water to coffee and timing of the flow rate. It's able to create layers of complexity throughout the whole process. So the outcome of it and how we educate people is one, we tell them a little about the history of it. 1600s, Dutch sailors were sailing overseas uh, they got over to Japan and they traded the brewing devices that they built on their ships uh, with the Japanese artisans. Japanese artisans really took it upon themselves to re-engineer the whole process. But to go even further and why the Dutch sailors were using this coffee, they were looking to conserve firewood uh, on their long voyages. And so they figured out, why don't we try to make coffee without hot water? And that's where a cold brew concept came to be. That's kind of the historical part of it. The Japanese since then took it on, re-engineered the whole process and really brought their craftsmanship into the play. And then in terms of the flavor, how we explain it to people, so going back to the beer comparison, Kyoto iced coffee would be like the Belgian style, right? So beer also usually made with about four different ingredients, coffee with two. The Belgian style is going to be stronger, sweeter, and almost no bitterness compared to, let's say, like a hoppy 
beer. So the same thing with this is coffee. Sometimes people's first reaction to it's to spit it out because it's just so like naturally sweet. Um, and and doing the demos at store level, explaining the history, that's been really that's worked for us really well in terms of educating the consumer about it. Interesting. So do you find that you are getting more coffee lovers, more tea lovers, or people that don't really have an affinity to any kick in the butt type of product? Yeah. So to speak about some of our super users, they are generally coffee lovers. What's happened with coffee, there were three waves and right now we're going through the fourth one. The first wave, 1852, comes around Folgers, San Francisco. Folgers were just that big red bucket, people just tossing in their hot water to really get a kick of caffeine. Then came around uh, 1960s, comes around this Dutch guy, um, Alfred Pete, Pete's Coffee. And his whole thing is I really care about bringing out the different flavors through elaborating on the different origins of coffee. Is it a South American coffee or is it an African coffee? And each one has a different flavor profile. Then comes around two th- early 2000s, this clarinet player that cares about aesthetics, comes out of nowhere. His name's James Freeman, and he invents blue bottle coffee. And his whole thing was, I really care about making the flavor stand out based on not just the origin, which Pete's already established, but I care about the date and the freshness of the coffee. And if you consume it within two weeks, you get all these different flavors that you otherwise wouldn't have. Uh, And that would be third wave coffee. So Pete's, Berkeley, California, Blue Bottle, Oakland, California, and then comes coming around fourth wave. That's what we're in right now. Now we're going for that third wave coffee that really highlights those complex flavors in in the actual brew. Uh, Coffee uh, for the technical folks, 850 aromatic compounds, twice the complexity of wine. So the complexity of it does really resonate with a lot of people. And so we are trying to highlight all the complexity of it, but making it available to you as soon as you wake up. So you don't have to actually go to a very unique coffee shop and wait for like 30 minutes. And that's what we're trying to really establish. And we found that the consumers, uh, generally, it's a cross-section of craft lovers, people that really like high-quality craft. Then it's going to be, at first, we found out a lot of caffeine addicts, like people that love, uh, they were talking to us about different coffees, different energy drinks, and nothing could do it to them, like Drip Dash, uh, because it's so highly caffeinated and concentrated. And then it's also going to be just people that want the convenience factor of that delicious product on the go. Um, and then we resonate pretty well with, what I call them the Japanese curious because of the backstory and the branding. Uh, and then also generally millennials as well. Okay. So you guys are really at the forefront of this fourth wave that we are seeing in coffee. And I mean, this craft lover, I mean, everything about everything about Drip Dash screams millennial coffee lover. You need this all the time getting to you 100%. Does the way Drip Dash looks and show up today, is that how it looked and showed up when you guys first started? Great question. And answer is absolutely not. <laughs> so I, I think a common misconception that we found and my background is actually in software uh, where software is a very agile product building process and that's kind of how we treated the company since the beginning i, I think uh, we've seen quite a lot of times in food and beverages uh, because it's such a 
challenging product to get off the ground. You need you need first a manufacturer, you need a formula, you need a lot of capital to get started and so on and so forth. We decided to start from a different format because we think that to make a brand that's built to last, you need to not decide on a product that you want to bring in the world, but you want to decide on how to create a product that the consumer wants out in the world. So what that meant is at first, you know, we're starting off with this unique coffee. We really like it, but we're not sold on it because we want to see our consumers' reactions. We started off at first, it was an eight ounce PET bottle, so plastic. And we used to have a laser printer that we bought our labels from Avery. And we tested the different messaging iterations and the style that went behind it as we did both store demos and digital ad tests to see what's getting better pull from the consumer. Through that, we iterated quite a few different times. That was all built in-house. We have a little bit of design skills uh, from the three uh, co-founders. And then what we did, we hired a designer and we moved to glass bottle, right? We said, okay, we're based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Our consumer really cares about uh, is environmentally conscious. And then we had uh, somewhat of a more professional look. Looking back at it, I think that artisanality that we had in our first bottle, it went very far. And I think there's a common misconception, again, that you need to hire some like $100,000 marketing agency in order to build out your brand. But I think you are better off trying to do it at really small pieces and learning what really works and whatnot. From the glass model, the second version, we went then, we put our heads together and we said, okay, coffee is so saturated um, at retail level. How do we really stand out? And that's when we came along with this concept that we called not soy sauce. So we had many, many, many long nights working with different uh, manufacturers overseas, trying to figure out how to get a custom drip dash blue cap on a silk custom printed soy sauce bottle. And that was, I think, the closest thing we ever had to going viral. We got authorized at a few different Whole Foods regions through it. It just stood out. Imagine you're going through the coffee aisle and there's a soy sauce bottle in there with a cap color you've never seen before. It's going to be a showstopper and get you to at least stop browsing, drop what you're doing and look at what's going on. And that was probably the closest thing we had to going viral. And we'd have all these organic videos, people sending us. TikToks, going to their friends and chugging the soy sauce, quote unquote, and making this whole really funny play with it. And people really loved it. And at that point, we realized we took a little bit away of the craft, that now people are using this as more of a comic tool. And we don't know if that's going to be a one-hit wonder, like a burrito blanket or a fidget spinner or whatever. And on top of that, we were uh, moving through from there, from our in-house commercial manufacturing, where you had to scale and move to a co-packer, which there are not many or any places in the world as far as it exists today that have a production line to fill coffee inside of soy sauce bottles. So we then went to a little bit of normal, normal type of play where we had, then we moved into cans and we had a, a design that looks more similar to what we have today, which moving from plastic to two different glass iterations and then two cans. We find the recyclability of it is is peak. It's not as as great as glass, but with what we're able to do today and because we have a large part of our business that's online, glass was practically impossible. So we had to 
look at what can make all worlds meet together. And, and uh, we're pretty happy with the product and the form factor that we have today. You guys want to voice sauce bottle. I love it. Like, <laughs> I love that you like, <laughs> you're like, how do we, how do we stand? Let's do yeah. it. And it's incredible. It's incredible. Oh my God. It's amazing. This yeah. looks so good. So I'm looking at it. It literally <laughs> looks like a soy sauce bottle just with a blue cap. Totally stands out. Totally show shop stopping. So such a huge difference. Your package today very still stands out. Like very sleek. I get that craft piece to it. It has this level of sophistication, especially as we talk about, you know, how you describe this fourth wave of coffee. I definitely get that from the package as well. What were the internal conversations around the fact that Hey, we have this bottle that is, you know, people are connecting with, people are wanting, you know, to share things, closest thing to going viral here. And being able to step back and like look at your internal mission and where you want to go in terms of we want this, like this is part of the craft movement. I mean, it's very difficult to look at something that's working and then want to step away from it because you know it's misaligned with where you want to go in the future. Talk to me about how some of those conversations went, because I'm sure I'm sure that wasn't an easy decision in some ways. Or was it? Yeah, uh, definitely. So I think there were a few things we were taking a calculation as we're deciding to move back into it. One was the scalability of it. That was the first factor that it would just... It, it was a point where it was either we have to raise a lot of money and build our own in-house manufacturing facility because we did all of this was handmade craft, right? And there is uh, some scaling issues with, with that component. The other piece is uh, as we're manufacturing it overseas, what was going on through the time it was the early, uh, let's call it the second quarter of the pandemic. So a lot of this uh, global supply chain was pretty uh, challenging to navigate. So th- those were some of the hurdles. And then on top of it, we were looking at data um, and we were just seeing what is the reorder rate really looking like. Sure, we had a really good growth strategy when we put it out in the market and we're able to pre-sale or do a pre-sale of these bottles one unit at a time. We sold each one for $15 as a pre-order like five months in advance, a five ounce uh, bottle. So liquid gold, essentially. But it just based on looking at reorder rates and what we're doing with previous more standard packaging, and then looking at also the different grocery stores that we're looking at, where it invoked a reaction from different buyers. There were certain buyers that didn't like the product, while the consumers, we got mostly positive feedback from. But there was a level of confusion there was from uh, at least the buyers. Imagine like an old school grocery buyer that's been in the business, seen it all, and now they see something they haven't seen. It doesn't make sense to them. So I think the combination of all of that was just um, a little more trouble than what it's worth. And that's when we took a step back and, and said, let's put this back on the drawing board and test out uh, both digitally and on site where we're doing a lot of the demos pre-pandemic mostly uh, to see how... Uh, we could really stand out, but do it in a more scalable factor. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if you're not seeing those repeats and you had seen it from the previous one, um, you know, there's those first orders are one thing, but it's those repeats that make the world of a difference in your business, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And what is your breakout in terms of con- direct to consumer or wholesale? 
Yeah, so today, um, especially during the pandemic, we started working with a few different marketplaces online and really leaning heavily into those uh, because what we found out is the online marketplaces, whether it's a Thrive, Good Eggs, Fresh Direct, uh, or whatever have you, they actually have incredible user base. That user base is online, which means uh, you can have, if, if the consumer really likes your product, it's a shorter marketing funnel to get them from a Fresh Direct or Thrive or anything of that nature into your website, whether it's going on your Instagram and starting to interact with you. And then you have that personal level of connection with the consumer. You don't have to focus so much on the retail play, which is uh, just touches so many hands before it really, you know, who you're talking to. There's merchandisers in between. You don't know maybe some stores why it's not selling. Maybe a distributor came and moved your stuff from one road to another. And the direct level of communication you can have with the customer is always going to be a lot more valuable, in our opinion, than the retail play. Although retail play has much deeper reach uh, because it's it's closer level of shopping hat or it's the shopping habit that exists today is still much heavier on the actual physical retail side than it is online. That being said, today we do about 60% wholesale retail and about 40%, which is going to fall between the online marketplaces and the direct consumer channel. That's a that's a pretty healthy split actually. It's not like really far leaning on one side at all. You really have like multiple channels, which you know, if anything, the last few years have taught us diversifying where those funds are coming from uh, is a great idea, right? Yeah, we agree. And talk to me about working with co-packers. I know you had mentioned that you guys are are recently moved to working with co-packers. That was a big decision, also with um, the packaging. What has that whole process been like for you? You know, I know everyone out there has heard good, bad, and ugly, probably more on the bad and ugly sides uh, with working with co-packers, unfortunately. Um, talk to us a little bit about that and and any learnings that you've had along the way. Yeah. Wow. Co-packers. That is something we have to talk about internally a little more often than we'd like to. I, I think that it is extremely challenging, even with the amount of data that exists today about the co-packers that are out there, it is really challenging to create healthy co-founder relationship. When we started three and a half years ago, there weren't lists that exist today. Today, you can find online Google like co-packer lists and you will find them. You can find ingredient supplier lists, which made the process really easy. Before, a lot of the IP you have as a food and beverage business is really the information you have from building your network and what people would share with you. So we were able to find a co-packer that we heard of from space, you know, it was kind of a, a lot of research and they have been very challenging to work with in a lot of ways. What happens, there's two ends of the spectrum. On one end, if you work with a very large co-packer that's pretty established and doing contracts with giants, let's say in coffee, if, if they were work with Starbucks or Pete's, for us to get the time of day from them is going to be really challenging. You need to, first of all, tell them a really compelling story. Uh, explain to them how you're going to scale, and then obviously going to be a higher price than some of one of the giant companies is going to be paying, and you're going to be lower doing lower production runs. So getting line time with a co-packer like that is very very challenging. And then the price point just to get started with inventory that you may not be able to count to sell is going to be also another challenge. Where and you need to work backwards is you're sitting on X amount of inventory and you need. X amount of distribution in order to actually make it play. And you have to work really well um, 
in terms of determining how to actually uh, sell and go through that level of inventory before expiration. On the small co-packer side, uh, that's kind of what we're working with right now, like a pretty small, medium co-packer. It is really challenging because their process changes all the time. One day, they have one can. The next day, we go through the candemic and we have to switch cans. So our labels then are like shrinking and don't sit perfectly well on the can. Then they go through challenges like, you know, like their new equipment that they're trying to scale. They use us as their test dummies. So then we have to do like an involuntary withdrawal where uh, we had a batch that tasted like vomit. That was fun. And then it's, you're dealing with pretty much almost as if this co-packer is like a, a partner in the business you really don't want to have but kind of a required and tied to. And that's what happens at small scale. They'll give you the time of day, but there's always some some new hurdle that you're really trying to navigate. And uh, then their prices might change because you know we're going through inflation or a, a pandemic. So that that's uh, also something that, that has been a learning lesson along the way. Uh, what I would say to people starting off as they're looking through their co-packers is, first of all, ask you can, here's a little trick. Sometimes on the bottom of cans or bottles, you may see a signature, like a date code. And that may have a letter or two that may actually say who the co-packer is. You need to reverse engineer that. And if you can find a brand that works with them as well, I have found out that people, even though there's some competitive nature to food and beverage, some people are willing to share a little bit of information and, and uh, war stories with you. So try to reach out to them, ask them about how the prices have changed and any relevant questions to figure out if this is the right co-packer for you. And then tap into your network as deeply as possible to see if they might have other resources for you to evaluate. And with all that being said, you need to, this is a game. Uh, What we've learned is you need to be really good about every aspect of where you choose to put finances down in your company. So from the very beginning with the co-packer, that being your entire cogs of the business, you need to look very, very closely at every single percentage point that is going to make a difference to your um, bottom line to be able to figure out if this co-packer is going to be suitable for you with the price point that you want to sell the product. And can you get to that 40-50% gross margin so you can actually get to the trade spend and everything you need to work in retail. Really good um, advice there. I know that it's not always easy. Sounds like you guys have been able to tap into some people um, to help with parts of that. And obviously, like you said, probably a lot more conversations than you would like to have with it. But they're like your partner, right? They're like your partner for growth. Such a such a big piece for sure. For sure. I'm curious, you had mentioned, okay, we had a line that did not taste great at one point. How have you guys managed some some of the negative pieces that come with, you know, you're, you're an agile CPG brand, which is so fantastic, absolutely necessary. One of the great advantages of being a small food brand, small and growing food brand. But with that, there's obviously some learning along the way. And sometimes there might be some, you know, negative feedback pieces like that. How have you guys managed when you've come out with something and you're like, oh, shoot, we got to tweak that real quick and like go and go another way? What, what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, good question. I would say, so for that specific unpleasant batch, that is when we were very grateful to have that strong online communication channel with our customers where we started getting messages from them 
It wasn't just one person. It wasn't a buyer. We got messages from our online community telling us, hey, bought your product at a store. I don't know if it's a bad batch or what's going on, but that means we have to pretty much put every other project to the side until this is sorted out because one bad experience with a brand, you're going to associate that forever with them. So if you can't pull those products off the shelf and work with every uh, retail partner and distributor to make sure you're going to not only fix this problem immediately, but you're showing them how much you care about it. And then you're also telling them that you will work on different types of promos or whatever types of ways to compensate for the fact of what's going on wrong right now. You're just really tailoring the best solution for a problem that is uh, unfortunate, but you have to, uh, it's just something that you have to do um, and put it as a a number one priority. So yeah, what when these things do happen, you have to be exactly like you said, just super agile. You have to understand that these things happen. It's food and beverage. There's, um, I'm sure everyone had their fair share of terrible batches, but you just want to be able to show empathy to everyone in the process so you can get that in return. Really great advice because you're right. Everyone, everyone hits that in their food beverage, big company, small company, everywhere in between. It is part of the journey for sure. Or what is coming up next for you guys? What should we keep an eye out uh, for as you guys continue to grow? Yeah, so we are uh, continuing to grow our online channel. Uh, so that's always fun, meaning you can find us in more places where you shop online or directly on our website. And with that too, we're starting to do a few more Whole Foods launches. Uh, I might've mentioned earlier, we authorized a Whole Foods with a soy sauce bottle. And that was just around the time the pandemic hit. And that offer was rescinded, unfortunately, for the time being. So we are finally getting up and running there in NorCal and and, and starting that off. So that that's something pretty exciting for us. And then just throughout the year, we have all kinds of limited edition drops we do. So we have we had a bucket hat not too long ago. We released like a limited edition can for a music festival that we sponsored called Second Sky, where uh, we worked directly with Asahi, the Japanese uh, beer company, and uh, the artist running the show known as Paul Robinson. And every once in a while, we do collaborations. So there may be a, uh, a milk tea boba collaboration coming soon. Uh, you're the first public place where this was announced. And, and then there will be a little more pretty cool merch that um, you want to show your friends. Hopefully we get to something as cool as our soy sauce bottle in the near future. Well, I'm sure you will because you guys are constantly looking for ways to delight your customers, give them what they're looking for and dropping some really cool stuff. Um, So if people want to connect with you and connect with Drip Dash, where can they go to make sure that they are first to know of all the awesome drops that you're doing? And of course, get their hands on some of your fantastic product. Yeah. So best place, either our Instagram or just at DripDash, or you can go on our website and sign up for the email list where we, uh, the email list is the first to find out about discounts, promos, new product drops. And the website is just DripDash.com. And yeah, if you shoot us a message, either on our website, we have a chat box or on our Instagram, we are pretty fast to connect and respond. I will look at a lot of the messages as well. So any positive, mostly, hopefully positive, uh, but we'll take the negative feedback because that's important to make sure we're pleasing all our customers. So I I will make sure to take a look at that as well and respond. Um, Or thank you so much for sharing the drip 
dash journey and everything you guys are up to and just love seeing what you guys are doing for this fourth wave of coffee and bringing some excitement to the category and giving people their uh, beautiful caffeine fix, however they can get it. So thanks for popping on and sharing the journey. Yeah. Thank you again so much for having us. It's been a blast jamming. Hey, Joe. That's it for this week, food friend. Thanks for tuning in. If the show helped you in any way, please go ahead and leave a rating or review of the show below. I also want to thank our sponsor one more time, the Food Brands That Sell program, the program to transform how you navigate the CPG industry and ultimately sets you up for success within it. Go ahead and get yourself on the waitlist using the link below, or you can put yourself on the waitlist at foodbrands.sellwaitlist.com. Catch you next time, food friend.